welcome to the Tennis with an Accent podcast. This is your host, Matt Zemek. Uh, Sakib uh, has, uh, uh, his daughter isn't feeling that well, so he's taking the week off. So so best wishes to Sakib and his family and his daughter, uh, make a com- that his daughter makes a complete recovery. Um, it's not COVID, by the way, Sakib told me off the air, so that's good. So just we hope that uh, Sakib's family uh, gets back to more stability. So we promised you after the French Open that we were going to have a mental health tennis podcast this summer. And we're really happy to have as our guest, Dr. Craig Cipher. You can find him on Twitter at Dr. Cipher, C-Y-P-H-E-R. He is a clinical and sport psychologist. He is a certified mental performance consultant uh, at the University of Rochester uh, Fitness and Science Program. So, uh, Dr. Craig Cipher, it's a great pleasure to have you on the Tennis with an Accent podcast. We really appreciate you taking the time for this very important conversation. Yeah, I'm really excited to be on and, uh, and really ready to, to have some discussion about athlete mental health here. Absolutely. Looking forward to it. So, the entry point for this conversation, you know, we're going to take this conversation in plenty of different directions. We have about an hour to really explore all the various nuances here. But I think uh, we're coming off the Olympics and Simone Biles joined Naomi Osaka in terms of becoming a foremost representation of mental health for athletes and how how hard it is <clears throat> to have the right kind of conversation. And I think a lot of skeptics of Naomi Osaka will say, you know, she hasn't gone through a fraction of the trauma that Simone Biles endured. You know, Simone Biles went through uh, sexual assault at the hands of Larry Nasser, as did her other, some of her other um, American female gymnastics uh, athletes. And so some might, people might say that, you know, Naomi Osaka, she hasn't been through anything close to that. And that could be a way for some people in the public to minimize what Naomi Osaka has gone through. And so, you know, my main first question, Craig, is, you know, what's what's a what's a, a healthful, helpful and healthy way to talk about these things? What's not a helpful way to talk about these things when we compare and contrast levels of trauma, levels of mental health difficulty that athletes go through? You know, is that inviting uh, the wrong kind of conversation? What's the right way to go about uh, mental health for athletes and, and just acknowledging what each athlete goes through on her own terms? You know, I think that's one of the challenges, you know, with uh, uh, the sports world, we're used to a little bit more of like the black and white, right? That, that it's either either you win or you lose, right? Uh, you, you, you win and survive and advance and move on or, or you lose. Um, we, live, we live within a lot of hierarchies, right? So the, the rankings are, are real. Um, your UTR is real. Uh, those, those kind of things are out there. Um, but I think when we think about mental health, we need to kind of stretch ourselves to get out of that. Um, that hierarchical or, or black or white kind of mindset, because um, you know we, uh, mental health is so much more subjective. So, like what Naomi Osaka is going on is real and real to her, and um, and 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 challenging for her as she's really documented and what she's talked about. And what Simone Biles is going through is just as real. And and to to apply a hierarchical point of view where it's like, well, you have the right to have mental health issues versus you don't. Um, you know, that's where we start to get into some, some, you know, kind of negative or harmful thinking about this. 
So what's a good starting point in terms of, you know, applying universal standards, universal principles, and, uh, you know, being able to respect the athlete where he or she is on the journey? And maybe uh, a, a good accompaniment to that, uh, doctor, is just what's your approach? What, are, what do you try to do when you speak one-on-one -on -one with an athlete and you try to establish, you know, okay, you know, how do we respect your space and how do we acknowledge the journey you are on, not anyone else's? You know, it's particular mm -hmm. to each person. How do we uh, create empowerment for, for athletes? Um, yes, you know, I know, I know, I think that um, you know, my, my approach, even from the start is, is really helping to understand, you know, the athlete's story and what are they, what are they coming in with? You know, um, what are they looking for out of, uh, our sessions together? So I think I always kind of say that my, my practice kind of comes in thirds, you know, I have a third of my practice are athletes who are doing really well, and they just want to move from good to great. They just want the mindset skills to be even better in, in their sport. Um, for some, you know, it's, uh, I do a lot of work on injury recovery. So kind of helping them through the, the injury recovery aspect of, of what's going on. Um, and how do we understand how that impacts us? And then for others, it's, you know, kind of an, an athlete mental health perspective, you know, other stresses that may be going on, um, that are completely outside the, the lines of the court, um, whether that's coach relationships or, uh, you know, or family relationships or other, other mental health issues that rise up. So I really start with kind of understanding where, where's the athlete coming from, what are they coming from and where are their needs right now? Um, and so being able to, to hear that and really understand like what's, what their path has been. Um, and then also just kind of, you know, like what, what sports psychology can offer, you know, and I always kind of say that like, um, just like uh, with strength and conditioning, we can use those, what we know from strength and conditioning to get better and get better on the court. Um, we can improve our nutrition and sleep to get, to get better. Um, there are things with our mindset that we can do to kind of help us to, to get stronger, manage pressure, you know, be ready for those tougher, challenging moments. Okay. We're, we're going to talk about Naomi Osaka soon enough, but before we deal mm -hmm. with her specific uh, case, um, yeah. what, what's your, just been your broader experience with tennis players generally, uh, you know, have you found certain aspects of tennis players stories that are different from, let's say softball players, hockey players, uh, in other sports, just what, just, just speak to your own experience in terms of tennis players, your interactions with them, maybe interactions with tennis coaches as well, in terms of mm -hmm. trying to unlock uh, elite performance in tennis players as a group, just any noticeable mm -hmm. observations you have from your work with tennis players? Yeah, I mean, I think the the, the biggest thing and, and the biggest, you know, kind of pressure point is that, you know, you are there alone, right? Like in, in a lot of my team sport athletes, the the responsibility of winning or losing success or failure is shared. Um, and, uh, and at, at, at most, maybe in, in doubles experiences, you, there might be a little bit of that shared, but it really, but it's still going to be at least 50% that's on you. And I think that's one of the biggest, you know, biggest challenges just to start, you know, that um, you, uh, you know, you need to be able to, to understand and take on um, that responsibility. And, and a lot of tennis players are kind of drawn to that because they thrive on that, uh, on that part of it. Um, I think, I think the, the mental grind of, um, you know, being able to play, um, both this combination of, um, you know, kind of point to point, but also to be able to kind of go through the, the natural 
um, ebbs and flows of a match and what that brings. And then once that match is finished, you have to kind of grind through the next match in that tournament, right? And, and, and being able to manage, um, you know, maintaining your focus, being able to be intense when you need to get loose and relax when you need to um, and be able to manage that uh, match to match. And I think, you know, the, the, the failure feeling really permanent, you know, you could have your first match of a tournament and you have your plan to kind of stick it out and, and be there and be really successful and you get knocked out first round. Um, then you have a lot to think about in terms of your time, time uh, heading back home. Um, so I think those, those are some of the big things that I see within tennis. I think also just the, the grind, the grind of the travel um, of, of going, you know, uh, going to different tournaments, um, finding out different tournaments, what level do you play at? Um, those kind of things are really important as well. How do we manage um, some of those off-court things that uh, help them to kind of stay on track within it? That's uh, a big part of working with the tennis players that I work with. Uh, have you worked with any tennis players who are, you know, to an appreciable degree in the media spotlight? I mean, like a small, a small college tennis player, you know, that's not like you're in the league light glare you know, right in the middle of everything, but maybe like a division one tennis player yet. Any, any degree of work that you've done with uh, players who have to deal with, you know, media scrutiny to a certain degree. I, I think, yeah, I think on, on a, on a smaller scale, and that's, that's the level of, um, you know, some of the, uh, you know, kind of pro tour um, that we've had, but I think kind of the, especially on those, those junior circuits and, uh, and how that, uh, um, you know, spotlight, kind of shines on them pretty quickly and, and how they rise up through. I've definitely seen those pieces and that's help, helping athletes through those challenges, certainly. Okay. So, I mean, this is a transition to Naomi Osaka in particular, mm -hmm. um, you know, you know, and, and, and part of her experience is that, you know, going through the process of being scrutinized, you know, that, that mm -hmm. has been an important part of her uh, her journey as an athlete and, and the, and, and the problems that she's wrestled with now, it, you know, viewed broadly, her interactions with the media compared to other, uh, tennis players and other athletes has not been especially abrasive, but of course, especially abrasive is not the same as lacking abrasiveness at all. They're, they're just the natural process of being a professional tennis player will invite some interactions with media members which are not pleasant, uh, questions which are really dumb uh, and, and not well-informed. So she hasn't really been, I would say, under siege from the media, but, but yet there's a certain obvious underlying level of friction that inevitably rises from, from an athlete's interaction with the media. So, you know, again, some some people will skeptically say, you know, Naomi Osaka has really had it pretty good in terms of being a global public figure. She receives a lot of favorable coverage, but there's going to be some friction in that mix. So what is the the mental health response to that kind of dynamic where, you know, you might get favorable coverage most of the time, but you still will run into friction some of the time? What's like, what's a healthy overview in terms of uh, enabling an athlete to find comfortable space in that kind of situation? Well, I think the, the first thing we almost have to do is take this big step back and, and, um, and kind of understand anxiety a little bit more, right? So that, you know, anxiety, you know, kind of is this primal response, goes back to when we were, you know, like cave people 
people living in caves in terms of kind of keeping us, you know, safe from danger. You know, those those things, the 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 bears and saber tooth tigers of of our worlds. You know, that was the case for tens of thousands of years, right? Um, and so I think one of the things that I always kind of say is that sometimes, like with our modern world, anxiety doesn't make sense. You know, you could play in front of twenty thousand people and not experience that anxiety, but be in a room with fourteen people asking questions and that anxiety could be, you know, through the roof. Right. And, um, and so I think that just understanding that, like, you know, that, you know, anxiety can be, you know, triggered by these different situations, um, you know, for an athlete, for an individual uh, that we may not understand very well. Um, and that it may be hard for us to kind of stretch ourselves to understand. Um, so it may be, you know, that like it, sometimes it's, it's just the, the situation and, and how that's, um, uh, the, 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 what of the situation rather than like the how of, you know, the questions you've had to answer or, or the how of your experiences with the press. Um, there may be something for an athlete, just like getting, you know, that, that about that situation that particularly, you know, drives their anxiety, makes them anxious. Um, and maybe even, you know, I think as we're kind of seeing, you know, she's been through, you know, experiences with uh, uh, the media before, but like maybe it's a kind of a right now thing at this point, like my anxiety overall is really higher. So the things that really make it spike, um, you know, have been a little bit worse. Uh, so I think, uh, you know, I think starting with that understanding of that, like anxiety doesn't make sense, you know, and it's, and, and that's, that's what's hard about it. That's what's the challenge about it. Things that um, may not spike your anxiety, uh, you know, one day may, may spike it another, um, things that you had been good with, with uh, anxiety overall, it's suddenly has been really challenging. And I think that's the, the lens we need to start with seeing this. Okay, well, I'm gonna ask a few more particular follow-ups on Naomi Osaka, but I wanna step back sure. in this next question and just ask more broadly, uh, Dr. Seifer, uh, what are some general myths or misperceptions that the public has about athletes and mental health that, that need to be dispelled, or at least, you know, the, where the conversation needs to, to change in, in meaningful ways. Given your, your broad base of experience, you know, what are the kinds of ways we either talk about athletes or the ways we react to athletes that really need to change in order for the culture surrounding our awareness of mental health of athletes uh, to go in a much more positive direction? Yeah, I mean, I think the the first thing is this that we we tend to put these individuals because of what they can do um, in terms of their talent and their sport, what they have physically, and we say, well, they they possibly they can't possibly be going through any difficulties, um, or because of their success, right? Because they have money, or they have, they have they have fame, or that they have these things that they can't possibly. So I think the first myth is that because they're so physically fit, because they're so um, technically and strategically sound that they can't possibly have um, anything wrong with them, you know, and I think that's part of that idealization we have of the athletes that we look up to, um, I think is the, the biggest myth that we need to do that these, these are, they are human, you know, and, and, um, and that the athletes are going to go through uh, the mental health issues, you know, if we think about like the statistics that we know, so at any one point in time, one out of three people is, is dealing with a diagnosable mental health condition. Um, and then if we look at the lifetime incidents, that's, that's one out of two. So if, so if it doesn't affect me within my lifetime, it's definitely, definitely, definitely going to affect um, somebody that I love and care about. Uh, so 
it's we we can't then exempt these people that we look up to because of the things they can they can do on the court um, from those same issues that they're going to go through this and uh, um, and that understanding kind of the the athletes are people too you know and, and that and that there's going to be parts where they're not okay uh, through this becomes I think is the biggest myth that we need to think about. So in terms of your own applied practice, how, how do you try to change uh, not just how the athlete him or herself uh, responds to the situation, but like, do you, do you talk, I'm sure you, you, you talk to coaches or at least the people around athletes in terms of helping, giving the athletes tools, you know, to make, to make changes, uh, explore what you do, not just with the athlete, him or herself, but with the people surrounding that athlete and, and how big a piece is that in terms of uh, improving the athlete's uh, performance and, and more beyond performance, the athlete's sense of self, the, the athlete's sense of wholeness uh, and being just being able to be a complete put together person on and off uh, the, the court. Mm -hmm. yeah, it's, it's certainly a huge part. You know, I, I think, um, especially within, you know, the programs that I, that I'm a part of um, working at every level. So the, the sports medicine and athletic training level, um, the coaching level, um, you know, the, the strength and conditioning, you know, uh, coaches, um, you know, there's, they're all, you know, uh, part of this, this, you know, kind of level of continuum in terms of being able to support athletes overall. Um, I think, you know, you know, recognizing that, um, you know, like sometimes I think, especially for coaches being able to think about like what's going on beyond you know the behavior that they're seeing you know that like I think we can make some judgments about um you know the behavior that we're seeing so it seems like this person doesn't care you know or it seems like this athlete um you know you know is isn't interested today or isn't focused today and and helping them to kind of just take that step beyond and say well well do we do we know anything about what might be going on with this athlete that might be making it a really tough training session today or, may, or maybe made it a really tough tournament this weekend. Um, and, and so if they, if they don't have that knowledge, then talking with them about how do we ask the questions about that? Be like, hey, you, you know, it, it seemed like, you know, you, you weren't as focused today. You know, is there anything else going on? You know, because sometimes it's not just about, you know, what, what their serve is like or um, what their ground strokes were like. There may be other things that are going on and, and being open to asking that question um, and I think empowering coaches them to ask that those questions too. I think sometimes it's like, well, I don't know if it's if it's uh, you know part of my role or if they feel comfortable um, with with uh, you know like like me asking those questions. Um, but I think you know the, the the athlete will tell you if if, if they don't they don't want to share they won't share. You know they they will be certainly uh, um, upfront with that. But I think you know being able to kind of ask the questions of like you know no how are you really doing. You know, like, that's a good question or, um, you know, like what, you know, are there any stresses that were impacting how your play was off today? Um, so I think, I think being able to have that and I think um, being able to be okay with saying, for, I think for coaches, they just wear so many different hats in particular, um, being able to say, okay, I can, I can, you know, you know, work with a, a mental health professional or I can work with a sports psychologist to handle this part of it. You know, I don't have to take on all these things in terms of what's going on with, um, you know, the athletes that I'm supposed to be, you know, responsible for. 
you've touched on something really important that, you know, we don't know what's going on just by superficially looking at the athletes emotions on court. You know, a lot of people, a lot of casual fans will look at someone who is, you know, relatively stoic and will say, Mm -hmm. um, you know, just not a lot of intensity, just not a lot of desire, but underneath, you know, it could be a, a burning cauldron. Uh, you know, what are your, what are your experiences of athletes in terms of how pressure and stress manifest themselves because obviously in some athletes we'll see you know the racket smash you know we're talking about tennis in particular you know the the, the violent demonstrations but for a lot of tennis players it's the the paralysis you know their body doesn't Mm -hmm. move the legs don't move you know they're trying to shake up their their limbs before a point to kind of keep the blood circulating you know what's your sense of how tennis players process stress what are some of the interesting findings you've unearthed over the years that you can pass along to our tennis audience here yes you know i think you know i think for uh you know tennis tennis players in particular to to really reflect on um you know where's the zone that feels like they are at their best you know and i think um you know kind of the the that that level of intensity you can see on the court you know can kind of go from uh, kind of your your super intense kind of Rafa Nadal types to your Roger Federer needs to be like calm, composed, um, understanding through those extremes where where is your peak of your zone? You know, we talk about I always talk about the green zone. You know, your go zone when when everything is is clicking and working, and um, and being able to have like some peace with like what works for you and and have an awareness of what works for you, um, you know, and and being okay with that. I think. Uh, for some athletes needing to have a smile on their face when they compete, um, sometimes other people don't uh, don't respond well to that. So for them to be okay with them being more calm, composed, or do you need to be more fired up, uh, intense, um, you know, ready to go? And so if we know where the zone that's optimal, um, then we can kind of build some skills around how do we stay, you know, in that zone? How do we get to that zone? How do we stay in that zone? Um, and that can include things like our, our, you know, how we reset ourselves. Do we have a reset routine after something goes wrong so that we're not building up, building up, building up, and then smashing rackets, right? Is there something to kind of be that release valve that just, just resets it? So do what can I, you know, can I go to my towel, take that time as I'm, as I'm wiping myself off to just, you know, take that nice, slow, deep breath and reset myself and then throw the towel down and, you know, I'm ready to go for the next point. Um, are there are there things that I can do to reset myself and get back to that level of energy that I need to? And I, but I think knowing yourself, having that awareness is like the first step in being able to say, okay, like that's that's where I need to be as opposed to trying to play what um, you know this coach thinks I should play or you know what you know the 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 player that I look up to you know that their level of intensity. Um, being able to kind of think about like, where do I work? And then, you know, we can build some really good skills and strategies to kind of keep you there, get you there. So, you know, tennis has a unique culture uh, mm-hmm. relative to, to other sports. I mean, tennis is a, is a country club sport. It's a, it's a mm-hmm. sport that generally requires a lot more financial investment from parents, from families. Mm-hmm. Uh, how much does that piece enter into the work that you do with tennis players because you know because there is such a big upfront investment financially in a tennis player's career you know how does that weigh on 
that the, the athlete's mind in terms of like, you know, oh, if I don't play well, like I'm not, I'm letting my parents down. Uh, also, you know, you talked about how pl tennis players carry themselves on the court, maybe because tennis has a history as being a more genteel uh, sport. There's a sense of, you know, oh, I better not show my emotions like that would not be proper in terms of uh, how a tennis player is expected to carry him or herself. What are some of those the cultural challenges that you've come across uh, in terms of players, you know, just trying to be their own best authentic selves and and the the barriers they face uh, uh along the way you know i think the the financial piece is a is a huge part of it and i think um you know that that can add add a ton of pressure for for athletes so uh thinking about like yes we're we're spending the money for the registration for the tournament the travel out there the um hotel rooms you know to to go there and if i have a first round exit um you know, then, you know, what, what, you know, what kind of failure am I to my, to, to my, you know, family that's paid for that or, um, or what's going on. And that's certainly a huge uh, piece of it. And it, it really highlights the importance of, you know, whether it's, whether it's that and the financial piece, um, whether it's, you know, kind of these outside expectations, there's a big part of like, we need to be able to take all those things. And, and I refer to it as the parking lot, right? Like you need to be able to put it, put those things in the parking lot. Um, you know, and be able to put those things aside so that when I'm stepping on the court, the only focus is playing shot to shot, being in the moment, playing my game, picking up on the strategy that I need to defeat this opponent right now. Um, and so that those, those are definitely things that are going on, but like, how do we set those things in the parking lot? And there's a, um, a clean hacker, uh, you know, a sports psychology consultant who's worked with U.S. women's national team um, in hockey and in, in soccer always kind of talks about like, if you, um, if you go to the mall, right. And you go and you park your car, you know, you're not going and checking back on it every five minutes. You don't walk 10 feet towards the entrance and then go back and check on the, on the car. You don't go into the, you know, in, inside the doors of the mall and then go check. You don't go to a store and come back and check on your car. And that's a little bit of what we do. We need to kind of be able to park certain things and trust that it's going to be there when I'm get done. You know, like that stress may still be there, whether that's um, school-related stress, whether that's family-related stress, whether that's social stuff that's going on. Um, we need to be able to, to have our focus be in the moment for that tournament and know that, you know, I, it's okay for me to set this aside and uh, I, can, I can deal with it after the fact because if I carry that in, it's, it's like a weight, you know, it's a weight that's going to drag you down from, you know, game to game, you know, set to set, match to match that is going to, to weigh on you. If you, if you step onto that court with whether it's the financial stress or, or how people expect me to, to behave and perform, um, that's just going to get in your way. Okay. Well, I wanted to, you know, get, get kind of a broader view of uh, the challenges that you face. And now having done that in the, in the past few questions, we can revisit Naomi Osaka in particular. So uh, I'll, I'll ask some more specific questions, but let's, let me just get your overview of, of Naomi Osaka, just your sense of her journey viewed from a distance, what you see, what you have seen in, in her career, in her path, uh, you know, a lot of different uh, things to talk about in terms of Naomi Osaka's unique journey, um, you know, her Japanese and, and American citizenship, kind of living in two different worlds, that's a piece. Um, her the very emotional 2018 U.S. Open final when she watched, you know, the controversy involving Serena Williams and, and just having to 
you know, be a witness to all of that. That was a very complicated emotional experience. We also have strictly on the court, uh, the very big gap between her results on hard courts versus her results on non-hard court surfaces, grass and clay. And then we have this year's uh, episode at the French Open and her you know, concerns about mental health, her disclosure that she's been suffering from clinical depression for a few years. So a lot of different things to consider when we look at Naomi Osaka, but just what's your first you know, primary overview, and then we can kind of uh, un unpack uh, some of the pieces from 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 your 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 first sense of Naomi Osaka's journey. Yeah, I mean, I you know I can't really kind of you know kind of comment you know kind of directly you know in terms of um, Naomi Osaka not not knowing her, not knowing you know her her situation kind of personally, but I think it it really highlights like just the the, the complications and the um, the journey that uh, you know kind of athletes you know, go through to get to that level, you know, that, that, that's, that's probably just one of, we know her story because, um, because of her, you know, her, her magnetism and, and, and the interest that people take in it, but like the, the story to becoming a professional is, is such a, is such an arduous path, you know, and it can be incredibly challenging, the things that they do face. And, um, and, and I think that just kind of highlights that there's all these nuances to what is difficult and challenging. Um, to get to being able to perform at that level. Um, and that even when you get to that level, you know, like you mentioned kind of the hardcore versus versus clay and grass, those those challenges still exist. Those still exist from there. And even the the mental health challenges, the personal challenges can exist. Um, so I think that, you know, you know, overall um, on on that it just kind of highlights the the um, that there's there's a lot that people go through and get to to reach the, the pinnacle and the highlight of their sport. And a lot of times we, we don't see that, right? Like we just see um, them holding up the trophy on a, on a Sunday. We don't really see all the things that they go through in that journey that are, that are hard, that are difficult, that are challenging. Um, and, and so I think with um, the combination of athletes being a little bit more open about some of those things, and then also just the, our, our 24 um, seven, you know, kind of uh, always on, you know, uh, social media, media, uh, attention, we're seeing some of that, you know, bigger picture of what's what some of these athletes that are are really high profile are going through. Yeah, you mentioned social media. And so one of my one of the questions I definitely wanted to ask, and I think this is the right time to ask it. Mm -hmm. How did you how did you get involved in sports psychology and how and attached to that, Dr. Cypher, how did the the awareness of how athletes live in such a fishbowl today with social media, with the, you know, maybe not so much Twitter or Facebook, I mean, this could go back to, uh, you know, the, the internet and the World Wide Web in the 1990s. How did uh, the, the reality of, of the changing media landscape, uh, you know, affect how you process um, sports psychology and like, how did that motivate you to enter this profession? Because, you know, in the 1980s, we didn't have the internet and it was a totally different media world for athletes. And so I, I guess what I'm really trying to ask Dr. Cyber is how much does the study of sports psychology for athletes, how much is that related to the existence of modernized mass media? How, how, how connected are the two things and how has that informed your practice as it has evolved over the years? Yeah, you know, I think that's, you know, that's a really interesting question, you know, so I think, um, 
I think to to start, you know, I think that uh, you know the the social media things that the social media impact that that I'm seeing um, is you know there's kind of a generation of athletes that are that are fully inundated um with if you think about what happens in your social media stream right like so you're seeing you know within like instagram for in particular you're seeing like the top five to ten percent coolest most interesting most fascinating most triumphant things that um everybody that you're connected to whether it's whether it's celebrities you follow or whether it's athletes that you follow whether it's your friends that's what you're seeing you're just seeing the top five percent coolest most interesting things um and they're seeing them visually so I think that you know plays a role. You're not seeing the you're not seeing the the difficulty and the grind and the things that are hard and the things that are challenging um, for everybody. And so it can give us this false sense of that everybody's lives are so much more interesting, so much more perfect, so much more uh, healthy or triumphant or exciting. Um, and that weighs on people. And I think with with athletes in particular, there's they be they can become inundated with messages around. Um, you know, am I doing enough? Am I doing the right things? Am I competing in the right tournaments? This person's getting, you know, these off offers and these opportunities. Um, and, and so that, that comparison trap that we can have that just brings us down, just results in, um, you know, higher levels of depression and anxiety. And, and, and the studies show this, that like the more people, more time people spend on social media, the higher their levels of depression and anxiety. Um, so I think that's the, that's one of the, the big key key factors. I think in terms of um, uh, what's uh, maybe you know kind of more helpful or, or more positive in terms of some of the things that are going on is that you know there's ways to deliver information about you know like sports psychology about about athlete mental health um, in ways that we've never had before. So we can also kind of combat some of those some of the negatives of that with some really good positives. Um, so, uh, being able to kind of put out, put out videos, put out, um, inspirational quotes, put out, um, things that are, that are really helpful for athletes within those messages, um, I think is something that's really exciting. And so being, being active on social media, um, being able to normalize, um, that, that sports psychology and mindset training is, is out there that it's, it's accessible. This is what we do. This is what we're doing. Um, and I thought that was, you know, I, I'm, I'm maybe, you know, I'm certainly biased, but, um, you know, through the Olympics, I think we, we heard all this, all these um, aspects of, of athletes talking about their mindset, talking about the mental game, talking about the mental challenges of, of what was going on in Tokyo, um, but then even acknowledging their sports psychologists, right? Like we're, the people that they work with and that they help them, you know, not only parts of their sports medicine team, not only coaches, but that, that this being an integrated part of what their success is. One particular nuance I'm interested in here, Dr. Cipher, is that, you know, Naomi Osaka has millions of dollars, uh, a, a division two or division three college athlete does not. Yet, mm -hmm. when you're when you're an athlete, you're you perform That's part of what you do. It's part of your identity. So like how does does the level of competition an athlete reaches have any particularly significant effect on, uh, you know, how they see themselves or is it pretty much is this idea that you're a public figure as an athlete, is that pretty pervasive and, and does it transcend the level of competition an athlete reaches? How would you address that particular question? Yeah, I mean, I think it, it kind of comes to like pressure, pressure is pressure, right? And certainly the pressures may be uh, different from a, from a Naomi Osaka or a Rafa Nadal 
um, to your, you know, like division three, you know, athlete, but like they're going through their own, you know, kind of pressure to perform. Um, so that division three athlete may be a mechanical engineering major and, and needing to, to manage both being really great academically, uh, you know, a, a capital S student athlete um, at the same time as performing, you know, uh, you know, for their team, for themselves um, at their division three school. Um, but I think, again, you know, getting away from that, that hierarchical point of view that like you only understand kind of the, the pressure that your pressure is your pressure. Um, and that there's not necessarily like, you know, Naomi Osaka's pressure is more valid, right? Or that, um, that because I think that's the trap that some athletes get into, but it's like, well, you know, I'm, I'm only, you know, a high school athlete, so sports psychology really wouldn't apply to me, you know, or wouldn't be helpful for me. Um, or I'm only going to play at, you know, D2 or D3, you know, program. So um, that, but like, it's all about like, you have, you um, all these, all these avenues in terms of being able to kind of help yourself to be the best you can be at the level that you can be at your best. And, um, and, and mindset is part of that, you know, like mindset is something that can be developed, grown, nurtured, um, you know, trained uh, in a way that we really hadn't understood, I think, in, in, in general before, but I think people are more open to that, more excited about it overall. Now, one thing that's particular to Naomi Osaka's situation is that, you know, she has an entourage, she has handlers, she has a marketing team, you know, which advises her on, on what to do. It was part of the team that advised her, you know, on putting forth public statements at, at the French Open uh, earlier this year. Um, so that's not, that's not something that, you know, a, a kind of a lower tier college athlete or a high school athlete, you know, playing a non-revenue sport, you're not going to see those kinds of, of things, you know, uniformly among athletes. But, you know, in, in Osaka's case, you know, it, it raises the question, you know, what kind of people you surround yourself with in your life? So obviously, you know, you've had plenty of conversations with athletes in terms of, you know, finding the space that works for them, where they're comfortable. How big a piece is this notion of, you know, the people you surround yourself with and what's the general uh, flow of advice you give to athletes in terms of the kinds of people they surround themselves with, you know, which translates into the kinds of messages they are surrounded with as they go about their lives each day. Yeah, I think this is, this is a huge point of what I like to work on, you know, because I think when we look at the research around, um, you know, kind of like what, where does happiness come from, right, um, at its core, that the two things, the two components that were in terms of where happiness comes from are, you know, having a sense of meaning or purpose, right? And having a, a really strong sense of connection and connection to others. Um, so if we think about that, right, that's one of the things that we, draws us to sports. Sport, sport really kind of gives us a, a strong sense of meaning and purpose um, in terms of like, what are we striving for? How do, how do, what are the goals that we set for ourselves? Those kind of things. And that's important. Um, but as, as you're alluding to, you know, the, who you, those, the quality of those connections um, are, are, is the most important part. So you could be the, you know, the high school athlete um, who is on, you know, kind of your tennis team or your groups that you train with. Um, and like, what's the quality of the connections? How do I invest in the quality of the connections? How do I, you know, kind of uh, have that and, and, and all the way up to, you know, the, the pros and, and, and the people that are surround us. Um, thinking about not necessarily like how many people are, are in that group or in those entourages, but it's, but, but, but the quality of that connection 
And how do you stay invested in the quality of that connection, um, even as you're striving towards something that's really you know, important to you and, and having a goal? Um, and having a balance between, you know, that, that like having time socially um, isn't just goofing off, right? Like I think like some athletes get caught in that trap that like, if I'm not working on my game, if I'm not working on my strength and conditioning and I'm not working on my nutrition, um, that's just goofing off. But that's actually an investment, right? Like that's putting, that's putting gas in the tank so that you can take on those, those tasks that are driving you towards your goals. Having positive connections, having really great quality connections are, are a huge part of driving you to meet those goals. Flowing from that, Dr. Seifer, uh, you know, tennis is, is unique in that it really has a very short off season, you know, basically uh, November, December, and then they're right back on the treadmill in January. Um, so, and, you know, it's, it's a week to week sport and it's, it's a plane flight just about every week. Um, and so it, it just it invites a situation in which you know you're going to go to a city you're going to have a you're going to have a terrible first match you know so your 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 association with that city or that week could be very unpleasant and you know just to illustrate this with Naomi Osaka I mean when she goes to Europe for clay season I mean like that's you know usually it's an unsuccessful week most weeks mm -hmm. uh, during that part of the calendar so this brings up the point of losing and how how we how athletes do indeed keep their tank full and keep a positive outlook knowing that they live in a context of failure and imperfections and they're going to have bad weeks they're going to have bad matches um you know they're going to have some unpleasant experiences so what is what is your overall message to athletes obviously you know you're not always you're not usually talking to, you know, millionaire professional athletes, you're talking to athletes across the spectrum, but just what is the broader message you give to athletes in terms of handling losing, handling imperfection, handling, handling failure, knowing that it, it is a natural part of life. It's not this aberrational thing. It's part of their existence. What's your formula for getting an athlete to be at peace with the realities of imperfection? Yeah. I mean, I think the, you know, a, a, you know, the, I think the, the finding kind of a balance, right? I think the the message sometimes that athletes say is like, well, we just need to be positive, right? Like we we need to just kind of think positive, be positive, um, and because and and we know that that negative thinking is really really harmful. So they kind of get in this duality of like either I'm positive or I'm negative. Um, but it probably probably doesn't feel very realistic to be like super positive, like yes, I'm the best, I'm gonna get it after you really just got bounced in the first round from that tournament and spent all this time and and um, an effort to, to be at your best and had a really poor performance. Um, so I talk a lot about, you know, the, the importance of kind of being neutral, if we can kind of dial back to neutral. So that, that situation that happened, that, that loss that we took, like that's real, that's, that's a real thing that happened. Um, but it's really important then to say like, all right, like how do I neutrally, you know, uh, uh, you know, kind of approach where I need to be for the next time. So um, so I know that I can't get negative and really kind of get out of myself, but how do I just kind of stay more in for neutral? For me, it's more about like, how do we get back into the present? How do we take that feedback? And we just see that, that match instead of as an indication of how horrible I am on clay, how do we take that as feedback that I need to get that I'm, that I'm, that this situation is giving myself. And then how do I put that into my training? How do I prepare for the next time? How do I stay neutral with that? How do I stay in the present? How do I stay in this week? You know, how do I stay focused on the six feet in front of me 
um, rather than being stuck in the past or overly anxious about the future, um, how do we take that loss just as feedback? And so kind of taking a little bit of the, the emotional kind of cost of, of that, letting a little bit of the air out of that, that intensity and just saying, okay, how do we neutrally look at this? And then how do we stay in the present in terms of like, that's just feedback, that's just information. And what do I need to do from it from here? Now, one of the interesting things I've observed in the realm of sports psychology in the past year and a half has been the pandemic. And, you know, what the pandemic mm -hmm. did, not just in tennis, but in, across all sports, you know, it was an interruption of several months. And we've we saw athletes in various sports respond very differently to that several month uh, pandemic break. And some athletes were, you know, came back really refreshed. Uh, and they, they showed a new and better side of themselves, uh, you know, coming back from a, from a multi-month layoff. And some athletes, you know, were, were had trouble kind of restarting the engines, so to speak. Like they might have had a good competitive groove before the pandemic hit. And then afterward, it was hard to kind of restart. What did the pandemic uh, t tell you in, and, and how did the pandemic inform you in terms of, just the, the toolbox you have at your disposal to, to equip athletes to help them be at their best. What are some of the realizations that came across for you during the pandemic? Yeah, I think one of the things that, that we really realized in, in life, I think we, we take a lot of things for granted and we kind of think that certain, certain things are certain, right? That we think that, you know, this is the way, you know, this is always going to go and what's going on. And the reality is there's a lot of uncertainty in our lives and, um, and being able to kind of have a sense of peace with that uncertainty, um, that there's going to be a lot of things that we cannot control. So how do I stay focused on the things that I can control? You know, that, that what are the, the, the athletes that really thrived through this? You know, their focus became on controlling the controllables. And I always say that like the, the, the controllables are ear, right? Like E-A-R, my effort you know, my attitude, and that might not necessarily be super positive. Like, again, that, that might be more about being, being neutral and, and being focused in the present and in my response. So it's effort, attitude, response. And, and that's always been true, you know, that, that if I stay focused on the things that um, I can control within my effort, my attitude and my mental approach and like how I respond to things that don't go well or how to respond to things that, that aren't, aren't working for me. Um, you know, that's always been true, but I think it was even more true in the situation where all this, you know, the structure of that we would normally have, you know, kind of broke down or got taken away. Um, the opportunities, you know, may have been shrunk in terms of what we can do. Um, and the, and some athletes really struggled through, through losing that structure and, and, and losing, um, what was out there, losing that certainty. Um, and some were able to find ways to thrive through it. You know, and, and the ones that were really successful controlled what the, they could control. And they were able to just, you know, be able to either respond to things they can't control or be able to let go of the things that they couldn't control. And, uh, and I think that's what we're seeing as we kind of move through this, that like that uncertainty, you know, we have Delta variant and we, we, we don't know how that's gonna impact the sports world, you know, in tennis and, and across a lot of different areas. Um, but, there's not a lot about that that we can control right now. There may be things that we can control personally um, that we can we can manage personally. We need to stay focused on those things. My effort, my attitude, and how I respond to things. Um, speaking about tennis players again on, on a kind of a broader level, just is uh, 
is there do you have a particular success story uh, with a tennis player and and if you and if you don't it, it could be with another athlete but like what's a mm-hmm. what's a relatively recent example of an athlete you were able to kind of unlock their potential or at least if not even that just make the athlete feel much better about him or herself uh what's an applied example that you can share with our audience Sure. You know, I think, um, you know, one, one story that I'd like to tell with a, a tennis player in particular who uh, was just in this really difficult rut, he kept on hitting, um, you know, kind of this, this series of just really rough first round exits and really, really frustrated, really angry with himself um, coming in and kind of like these like three back to back to back tournaments that were really rough. And he was just just feeling in that rut. And, um, and his, his, you know, kind of fallback was always to like work harder, right? That, so it's kind of throw himself into training, throw himself into practice matches with people. And he just needed to kind of like grind through it. And so um, he, uh, you know, so we sat down with it and I was like, and I actually did, we actually had a prescribed break. So he talks about how like with, within tennis, there's maybe this, you know, a little bit of quiet time, November, December. And so we actually had him take, uh, a four week prescribed break from tennis. Right. And he had never done this since he was, you know, he was 17 at the time. He had never done this since he was like seven years old, taking that, taking that long of a, a break from it. So we took a four week break. He ended up playing some like basketball recreationally with friends, you know, uh, you know, re, you know, you'd kind of reset himself, spent, spent more time with friends in general, um, tempted at times to kind of pick up a racket was working out just for himself and not necessarily for tennis. Um, and then came back after that break and, um, and was just so incredibly refreshed. And then, and so that, that, ref- that refreshed feeling carried forth. He was, he was making finals of tournaments. He was having all these, you know, really great uh, experiences overall um, back to kind of loving, loving that game. So I think, you know, the, the, the point that I was kind of doing this is sometimes like prescribed breaks, um, giving yourself permission to kind of take that time away actually refuels your tank you know and um and, and especially with tennis because there's there's always another tournament to to get to there's always another one to sign up for there's an, always another one to go and um and so there may be you know even, you know the, the rust that he may have felt from that four weeks was way counteracted with his mental approach in terms of feeling that refreshed and, and getting back to that love of the game again love of competing and he was able to, to reconnect to that in a way that was really successful that's an outstanding story, Dr. Cyber, because our, our tennis listeners will know that, you know, Ash Barty, the number one uh, woman player in the world, she played cricket for a few years and that detour seemed to really refresh her when she came back to tennis. She had a lot to offer and here she is ranked number one. So that's a really great story. Mm-hmm. All right. Final say final segment of the show. Uh, in terms of Naomi Osaka, another particular piece of her story, you know, she's in her early 20s. And this brings up the point of, you know, how how different do you relate to various athletes based on their age? Like, how do you relate to a a high school age athlete? How do you relate to a young professional athlete? How do you relate to like a 33 year old veteran professional athlete? What are the what are the similarities? What are the differences in terms of the entry point for your conversation with 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 an athlete? Uh, based in terms of mental health, holistic wellness, being at peace, what are kind of the commonalities and what are the differences that that help you um, deal with different stages of an athlete's journey? Yeah, I think, you know, one thing is really helping to understand kind of like 
what's the current level of like knowledge and experience um, in terms of both on the on the sports psychology side or the mindset for their sport um, and you know like uh, like their own kind of mental health experience you know so that that 33 year old um, you know kind of uh, you know pro pro level athlete um, may have had a lot of different experiences positive or negative with um, with either sports psychology or with counseling or that kind of stuff and really helping to understand what that experience has been like is really helpful for where do we start? What is, what are they looking for now? How do we help them? Um, as opposed to some of my, you know, like my younger athletes, um, you know, I see athletes as young as 10 or 11. And, and if we, if we, if it starts to make sense within tennis, right. That like, that's when it starts getting really serious for a lot of, a lot of tennis players. And, um, and so, uh, so helping them to like, they may have, have no familiarity with anything related to sports psychology or counseling or what it looks like or what's going on. Uh, they, they may only know from, from, you know, cartoons or, or Netflix shows, you know, <laughs> what, what a psychologist does. Um, so sometimes there's a lot more education on that end. Um, and so, so either way though, we want to kind of start with like, what, what's their, what's their knowledge and experience within this? And also what do they understand about um, their mindset within their sport? You know, like how, how sophisticated is their understanding of how the mental, how important the mental part is um, to their success. Because uh, you kind of see this, this uh, gradual change where um, by the time you're kind of like junior, senior, you know, year, year of high school, you really start to value that, um, how mental the game of tennis is. You know, you really understand how important that is. You have a good perspective on that as you age and as you mature. Um, and so, so being able to kind of see that growth within there and, and, and what, what has the, you know, experience been positive, negative, neutral, um, with, with how that's gone through their, through their days, through their experience, through their competitions. So this invites a, a follow-up question, Dr. Seifer, and that is that, you know, in terms of, you know, being an athlete, it's a very intense, high pressure, high stakes world. Um, and so obviously there's a lot of importance just on being able to get an athlete to be uh, at peace, to achieve a certain degree of calm and comfort on the court, you know, in terms of going through training, going through all the rigors of that. But, you know, what is how what is your approach in terms of trying to take the immediate focus on the day-to-day -day struggles of the athlete and build a bridge toward, you know, providing uh, coping resources, not just for a sport and for an athlete's existence, but to, for life itself. How do you build the bridge between the immediate challenges faced by the athlete and trying to create this full, fuller life architecture where you're able to be at peace, not just as an athlete, but of course your identity is so much more than who and what you are as an athlete. How do you provide holistic life coping skills through your work? Yeah, I mean, I think that's what I kind of say is that like, that's kind of the, uh, um, like the, the, the trick play or the, the, um, the, the trick shot of what, what I'm trying to accomplish, right? That the, the skills in terms of like improving your own self-awareness, staying in the present, um, building skills like breathing and muscle relaxation, visualization and imagery, um, being able to, uh, you know, set goals and realistically plan for the obstacles to, for those goals, um, being able to manage your own self-talk. Um, those aren't just helpful, you know, when you step on a court. Right, like those, those are those are pretty amazing. So I think you know one of the um, with some of the teams at our at our University of Rochester um, program, um, I remember you know kind of uh, meeting with one of our volleyball players, 
and and she was talking about how like you know the breathing techniques that she used for her serve she used to kind of prepare herself for an interview that was really important for her. So, so she used those same breathing techniques to kind of keep herself calm, focused, nailed the interview, got, you know, got the internship that she wanted. Um, and like, that's, that's kind of the, 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 the quiet secret of this, you know, that like, um, it's not just about, you know, that sports psychology is not just about building better, better athletes. It's about better building better people, you know, and build, and if you build better people, then build a better people will make for better athletes. Uh, and so I think that's the, the the point of this is that you know you know these are these skills that we're building and we're skills that we're we're teaching and helping athletes to grow and develop themselves. These are life skills, you know. And I think it's 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 about bigger picture within that. All right, final question. This has been wonderful, at least uh, you know from my viewpoint. Just a fascinating, very helpful, illuminating look at sports psychology. My final question is. Where do you think sports psychology is headed? What are maybe, maybe you could answer this through the prism of, you know, the things that you're working on right now at the University of Rochester, the fitness and science department, <laughs> where, where do you want sports psychology to go? And what just, what do you see for this profession, this study in the future in terms of its ability to empower human beings? Right. I mean, I think, I think that's the thing is that like, how do we take you know, the, the things that um, are working and uh, are successful at these professional levels, you know, like, so, so if you think about, um, you know, anything from, you know, kind of pro teams within, within sports and pro organizations, you have so many uh, you know, sports psychologists kind of being able to do that, or, or the U.S. Olympic Committee, which has several, you know, sports psychology uh, consultants on staff. Um, how do we take this information that maybe is just at that national team level, um, at the IMG academies of the world, um, at the Ohio States or Michigans or um, or uh, those those big big level Division One programs, and I think that's what we're you know kind of uh, I'm excited about here that we want to kind of take those programs and being able to offer them to high school athletes, to Division Three athletes, Division Two athletes, being able to kind of take the information that we know about strength and conditioning, about nutrition, and about sports psychology and mindset, and be able to bring that to you know athletes of any any background. Um, and, uh, and be able to kind of democratize a little bit, you know, where sports psychology is, as it be, have it be not just for, um, you know, the, the upper, upper echelons of, of sport, but being able to have it available to anyone and, um, and to have it be able to expose people to that um, all the way through the lifespan. Craig Cipher, you can follow him on Twitter at Dr. Cipher, C-Y-P-H-E-R. He is a clinical and sports psychologist and a certified mental performance consultant at the University of Rochester's Fitness and Science Department. Craig Seifer, it's been a great pleasure. Thanks for taking the time to join us on the Tennis with an Accent podcast. We really appreciate it. Oh, it was absolutely my pleasure. You know, thank you for the, this very thoughtful discussion. I appreciate it. <laughs>